Hey Forge family, you may hear the hum of the, the uh, fireplace in the background. It's a cold day here and I am uh, just about over the cough and clearing of throat and blowing uh, my nose. Um, I'm grateful to be on the way to well, uh, but I may sneeze on you. In the last podcast, uh, podcast number six, the Servant Songs of Isaiah, we were immersed in the misunderstandings of the contemporaries of the servant. When the messenger of God began to speak of the kingdom of God and of righteousness, he, Jesus of Nazareth, was first accepted as teacher, but then soundly rejected as one who did not know his place. How could he be the arm of the Lord? He's a carpenter! The growth of the servant of God was in obscurity and in near invisibility. He had no majesty, no power to attract leaders to him, no regal presence. In verse 3 of Isaiah 53, that, that begins the pouring out account of how the servant was despised, rejected, shunned. And his contemporaries, then still unbelieving, esteemed him. They, they, they totaled him up as a zero. Our griefs and sorrow he bore. But his contemporaries esteemed, they totaled him up as, as, as he was one who was struck by God, as if the servant deserved what he got. Piercing, crushing, scourging to gain for us peace with God. And Rapha, the Hebrew word our healing. We all wandered away like sheep, each of us choosing our own way. But Yahweh, Lord God, caused the iniquity, the, the willful sins of all of us, to crash down, to strike down on his servant. And, and that servant was our substitute. All right, let's pray. Lord the Spirit, here in Isaiah is lofty, towering theology and an amazing revelation that God the Father set out to redeem us all. And God the Son voluntarily stepped in to do all of that that the Lord had laid out, but at the cost of his own human life and suffering. Yes, Spirit, we can be perplexed at the deeds of the Father, but you lead us out into clear understanding of how Jesus was our substitute. Open our hearts, open our minds to learn of God's plan in Christ to deal with sin for all time. Lord, we need the anointed, outbreathed word of the Lord from this text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge, and those who are listening in, Let's read Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 9. <clears throat> he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so did he not open his mouth. His oppression and by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. 
His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with the rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. All right, verse 7. Isaiah is back as the speaker here in verse 7. Here, the servant's mind and tongue were discipled and disciplined to say yes to injustice and yes to a death he did not deserve. The servant's voluntary, patient submissiveness is displayed. The word in Hebrew for oppressed is nagas, to press, to drive, to oppress, to exact. But it speaks of maltreatment in general. The servant did not respond with verbal resistance or any insistence at his innocence. The servant knew the outcome already. Here, Isaiah is struck. The servant does not open his mouth. For Isaiah, in chapter 6, he remembers being confronted with a holy presence in the temple and was mightily convicted of having unclean lips and dwelling amongst the people of unclean lips. It's a metaphor for speech. And that impurity of Isaiah was dealt with by a live coal taken from the altar and touched his lips. And then Isaiah comes to offer himself as a substitute for the Lord who says, who will go and who will speak for us? And Isaiah steps up and says, here am I, Lord, send me. Isaiah had his own experiential breakthrough of what substitutionary sacrifice looks like and feels like. Isaiah has discovered that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. No animal can do more than picture substitution. Only a person can substitute for a person with a rebellious will. Isaiah is mind blown by this revelation. The servant did not open his mouth, and like a lamb he was led to slaughter, which makes this passage sacrificial in nature. The servant submitted voluntarily to a sacrificial death in silence. In verse 8, it begins with the phrase, by oppression and judgment. And it speaks of violent action against the servant in a legal context. This could be translated as, uh, without protection of kin and without due legal procedure. See, there's no attempt to secure a fair trial for the servant. Christopher North says, this describes judicial violence. The servant is taken away. He's dragged to punishment. Erwick is one of the scholars that I read references to. He said, he, the servant, is hurried away to death. And Alan McRae says, the servant was the victim of a judicial murder. This text in verse 8 is argued over word by word. And many, many scholars disagree with each other, and they suggest emendations, which is a word that says they attempted to smooth, to correct, to focus the nearly untranslatable Hebrew in its translation into English. Very difficult passage. 
the servant here was cut off out of the land of the living. This speaks of a violent, premature, unnatural death. <clears throat> he was wrenched, literally yanked from life. And his contemporaries did not understand. They just went with the flow. Now, why was the servant cut down out of the land? Isaiah comes back and says, For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The servant stepped in and took that blow. In verse 9, in all the Gospels, we see Jesus crucified between two thieves, men who were getting their just desserts on the execution ground of Golgotha. One even says, I, I, I am a sinner. I'm receiving this penalty for what I did. But you, Jesus, are innocent of the charges. He clearly saw the radical difference between himself and and the man who'd been crucified next to him, Jesus of Nazareth. The body of Jesus, if it had not been petitioned for with Pilate, would have been removed from the cross with the cadavers of the thieves, and they would have been buried, rolled together into some, un, un, some grave on, in unhallowed ground. Instead, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body and went and removed the body of Jesus. Now note, it wasn't Mary the mother of Jesus nor any of the disciples. They had fled. <coughs> Excuse me. And Joseph comes with a linen shroud and wraps the body, placing it in his own prepared cave tomb, which was a splendid burial place prepared by that wealthy man and offered to the body of Jesus. Here, Yahweh, the Lord, overruled the intentions of men to see the servant's body placed in a rich man's tomb. God intervenes. No more dishonor for the servant after death. Alec Macher says, Violence and deceit rise up to bear witness against the servant but in outward behavior and inner person, and in deed and in word, and I would add parenthetically, even in thought, close paren, no charge can be justly leveled against the servant. All right, let's read verses 10 to 12. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring. He would prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many. As he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. <clears throat> In verse 10 here, this passage has some widely differing language in English translations. The passage starts with, 
uh, a phrase, the Lord's will. Okay? And the word will is being uh, a word that's translated as will or desire or delight or pleasure. But here, in this context, I, I choose will as best fitting the flow. That phrase, the Lord's will, if you will, brackets the verse. It begins and ends verse, uh, verse 10. It appears twice. Yahweh, Lord God, was delighted, okay, to discover a discipled, righteous servant who would voluntarily choose to be a perfected guilt offering for mankind to accomplish Lord God's will. See it. God performs his will on that servant. And then the servant takes on the execution, the executorship of the Lord's will. Erwick again said, quote, Men could inflict suffering and death on the servant, but only Yahweh could make the servant's life a guilt offering. <clears throat> this makes the wrath of men, thus making the wrath of men serve his merciful purpose. The crushing reference is, again, uh, like verse 5, uh, it's aimed at the emotional devastation in the servant as he bore the sin of all. <clears throat> the death of the servant satisfied both the needs of a sinful people before God and the need of God in relationship to his broken law and offended holiness. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's look quickly at the basis of the references to a guilt offering. In Leviticus 5, verses 14, through chapter 6, verse 7, and chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, when a man, or when God, was deprived of his rightful due, or when he was wounded, or something was taken from him, when wounds were left on relationships or on the body or the purse, the law required a restitution payment, a fine, as part of the civil ordinances of the law given to Israel. When that restitution was made by the perpetrator to the wounded party, then a ram was offered on the altar to take away sin. Now, you know, practically speaking, I lose, I, you lose your temper and you punch somebody in the eye and there's permanent damage. Okay, now you have a perpetrator and a wounded party. Okay? And the law specified what the restitution would be. And when that was completed, then a ram was offered on the altar. And that was a symbol to take away the sin block before God. The results of the guilt offering and the restitution restored face-to-face -face relationships. Okay? And a way to describe that would be at-one-ment, which is an exploded version of atonement. Okay? It's a way to arrive at atonement for the sin and forgiveness. In Isaiah 53, in all the texts across Isaiah 53, Isaiah and Yahweh states that Yahweh is providing a prepared sacrifice and the servant presents himself as that sacrifice. Isaiah continues, pointing out that the servant will triumph after death. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The servant will gather the family for whom the guilt offering was made and who rejoice in its provision for them. 
over and over, the Old Testament affirms that those who have died are still alive in Sheol. But only here in Isaiah 53.10 does the scripture speak of after death blessings and rewards. In verse 11, death does not defeat the serpent. After his body and his soul, the nefesh in him, suffers, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The sense of the phrase, to see it, points to experience. And from experience comes experiential knowledge. Then Yahweh speaks. God steps up and he says, This righteous one, my servant, will justify, will make righteous the many. Now the word justify is a court term, a a judicial term. It means to make right, to make acceptable. My Sunday school definition is still correct. Quote, just as if I had never sinned, unquote. That righteousness of the servant gives him moral fitness for the task of sin-bearing. The word bear or bore, okay, when, you, when he bears up the sin, he bears the iniquity, is the word is shoulder. The servant took on his shoulders all the iniquities, all willful sin, and all the whoops, all the inadvertent sin, the unintentional but nevertheless wounding sin, to satisfy God and provide righteousness and justification to the many who respond to the good news. In verse 12, the servant is rewarded as victor. Now, in a military contest, conquest, the dividing of spoils was done by the victor. And if the servant had been participating in world government or rulership, that would be so. But presented here is, is this sense that it's a metaphorical use. And his victory and the division of spoils is dividing the servant's spiritual context. You know, his spiritual victories, his conquests. The word portion, verse 12, is an appointed amount. Uh, it's, it's even spoken of as an, an inheritance. It's set aside. It's already assigned to him. His inheritance was the many for whom he died. And the strong, the text says, he, the servant, will allocate them as spoils. These he conquered by his superior power, and he, the servant, will dispose of them, the strong ones, according to his pleasure. The reference here, I believe, does not refer to strong humankind. Rather, I take this as the victory of Christ over principalities, powers, and authorities that Satan had set in place over over earth to profoundly influence and pervert mankind and to rule earth after the fall. Soon, very soon, the ultimate destiny and judgment of those defeated fallen angels and demons will be made final. The servant will dispose of them at his pleasure. 
Verse 12 continues to say that because of the voluntary outpouring of the servant's life and his being numbered with transgressors, his, his, his personal identification with those he came to save, he is placed as an intercessor, a mediator, okay? <clears throat> Not as a barrier, but as a bridge between sinners and the punishment they deserve. The servant voluntarily comes to stand with us so that he has shouldered our sin. And when he does so, he brings us to God. Made clean and declared righteous. All right, Ford's family. We are his inheritance. We are his portion. We are the family that he gathered to himself. This is rich, deep truth, worth wrestling over and taking to heart. The first phrase of Isaiah 54 is, shout with joy. That should infect us all each morning, each evening. Look what the Lord has done for us. When this text was unpacked in the mother tongues of Northern Europe, English and German and Polish and Dutch, French and Swedish, Norwegian, Danish, and the Slavic languages during the Reformation, the shout for joy resounded outward. Missionary movements grew to carry that great good news to the coastlands and to the islands of the sea. Remember that phrase? Remember that illusion? That the servant was going to present himself and his message to them. Today, nearly a thousand language tribal groups sprawled across earth in the creases and the hidden places still have no written language, no Bible in their mother tongue, and little or no witness to them through marketplace languages of their regions of the reason why we shout for joy. So, Forge, please embrace these servant songs as pure treasure to you and to the lost who have yet to hear of Jesus and his servant role in their coming justification. <clears throat> Cry out for them. Pray that Holy Spirit will find open hearts, open doors in closed countries. And men and women who stand up and say, here am I, send me. Now, they may do it in person. They may do it digitally. They may load scripture portions into helium balloons and have them flow in the atmosphere into closed countries. There are many ways that the Lord has chosen to use to transmit the great good news of the servant. Finally, your right standing with God the Father came at a great price. Be filled and filled and overflow with thanks that God made a way for you to be justified, to be made whole. All right, let's pray. All praise, Lord God. All thanks. What an amazing outworking of your plan of salvation. Thank you, Lord, that there's, a, that there's more to come. There's yet to be fulfilled portions here in this range of servant songs so that every 
tribe and tongue and nation is represented. And they will lift their tongues and their voices in adoration and praise. And all of us who name your name will bow. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. All right, Ford family. God bless you. We'll see you soon.